Well, good morning again, church. You know, a minute ago, whenever Tim said good morning and you guys were quiet, and then he's like, that's not good enough, and you guys do it again, I would love it one day when a whole crowd just says no. <laughs> you know, it's like, how you doing? And then not a good enough answer, and the speaker goes, no, let's try that again, and it's like, I think that'd be hilarious. So just idea for later. Um, if you don't know me, I'm Jason. I'm one of, the, one of the pastors here. We've been in the book of Ephesians, and to get us started today, um, I'm going to ask, how many of you guys have seen the movie The Little Rascals from 1994? Yeah. I know that The Little Rascals predated 94, but that was my introduction to The Little Rascals, and I love that movie. I was a boy, I was, I was probably almost a teenager at the time, and so I could identify with this club of boys. Do you guys remember the name of the club? The women in the room always know the answer. It was the He-Man Woman Haters Club that these boys had formed. And of course, they've got this like fantasy version of a, their clubhouse is unreal. It would be like $200,000 here. It's, it, was a, it was a really cool clubhouse. Um, they had this really cool club, and they had this whole culture, and the culture was built around this shared hatred of girls. Then one of them meets a girl, Darla, right? And then the, the whole movie is about how Darla is disrupting the club, and it, it's a really fun movie. But what I like about it is the camaraderie and, the, and the, um, what it would be like to be in a club like that. Have you guys ever been in a club? Maybe, um, like I was in a car club, maybe you were in some sort of something like that, or maybe it was like an after-school club. Like I tried to be in yearbook, I was there twice. So I think I was technically in the club, but I wasn't, right? Or were you in a t team sport? Right? There, there are lots of environments where it's like a club, where you get to be a part of something, right? And there's this thing inside us, we love to be a part of something, especially when everybody else shares our interest. It's how clubs get formed, right? If you love books, you're in a book club because everybody loves books. It's, it's the shared interest, and we end up in a club. Or, or it might be shared values, and we end up in a club. And we like that. It's nice to be a part of something. I think that's one of the reasons why a lot of us enjoy church, too. Like, it's, it's nice to be around people who share our values and our interests. If you're here and you're a Christian, it makes sense you'd be around other Christians, right? And so I think it, it's this same mentality that we want to group up with people that share our values, share our interests. And I think one of the reasons why that's in us to want to, to group up like that is that we know what it's like to be on the outside of something too, don't we? Have you ever been on the outside the outside of a club, the outside of something like, I, I remember I tried out for the golf team uh, ninth grade at Fruit of Monument High School. And I had been golfing all through middle school. And so I, if I remember right, I actually did pretty good. It was an 18 hole tryout. I beat a lot of the guys that were there, but I didn't make the team because they had some rule about a handicap and I didn't have a handicap. I didn't feel like that was fair, right? And so I remember all year being like, I was better than some of the guys on the team thinking I should be on that golf team. I was on the outside. Or have you ever walked in on a meeting accidentally and then as you're sort of apologetically backing yourself out the door, you realize that you probably should be in that meeting? Have you ever found out about a meeting that was happening that you should have been a part of, but you weren't? 
and you feel on the outside. That feeling of being left out is part of what drives us to want to be part of something where we're on the in. But that feeling of being left out is something that um, I want to explore a little bit in a story from the book of Acts. We're going to be in Ephesians, but I want to just have you join me in the setting for what Paul is going to write. And so in Acts chapter 21, just imagine for a moment that you're there. Imagine for a moment that it's 60 AD and you're running your hands along a a hot, gritty stone wall. How in the world did they cut a block this big? How, how did they get it here? And not just one, but like all of them. This wall is so big. I'm so close to it, I can't even see the top. And as you're marveling at this wall and the size and the scope of this city, you're in a street full of people. And people are brushing past you and there's, there's languages that you've never heard, smells that you don't want to smell. Animals are running past you. In this adobe-lined street, it's hot, and you're focused. And then it dawns on you that you've lost your group. So you're a guest in the city of Jerusalem, and you don't know anybody else, and now you're alone on this street, and you look around, and it's just so much energy. There's so much happening, and you don't know anybody, and you hear in the crowd your name, Trophimus. And you look around because there's so many Trophimuses, right? Common name. You realize they're talking to you. Trophimus, come here. I I want you to meet somebody. It's your friend Paul. You can hear Paul's voice through the crowd, but you can't see him. And so you start moving toward the voice and eventually you lock eyes with him through the crowd. Paul is over there waving at you. And and you and Paul have been buddies for a while. You've been on some, some travel, some adventures. And you recognize him, he's kind of he's wily, he's kind of weather-worn, he's that adventurous kind of guy. And he's waving you over, he wants you to meet somebody, you make your way through the crowd, and the guy standing next to him looks so different. Paul's so weathered, and, and this guy is very uh, put together, his hair is put where it should be, and he's even wearing the robes, he looks like he fits the vibe in Jerusalem. And Paul says, Trophimus, I want you to meet James, our brother in Christ. He runs the Jerusalem church. James introduces himself, and then they go back to talking, and so you awkwardly step back a little bit. It's not your conversation, and you can hear them talking, and and Paul is so excited about what God has been doing out in the Gentile world. So many people are coming to know Jesus in all these different cities that he goes to, and he's telling all these stories. And then James pipes up, and he's excited. He said, you wouldn't believe how many of the Jews have believed. All all these Jews around here are coming to know Jesus too. It's amazing. And then James looks over Paul's shoulder, and he locks eyes with you, and he's still talking to Paul. But there's a problem. Paul, I've heard, I've heard that whenever you're out there, and you run into Jews, you talk bad about the temple, and you talk bad about the law, and you tell them they don't even have to be Jewish anymore. That makes some of, 
Some of us here kind of uncomfortable. That makes some of my, my Jewish Christian friends um, not trust you, Paul. I'm gonna need you to do something to show them that you're, you're still on our team. Um, I've got some friends that have just made a vow. I want you to make a vow too. And then you and my friends will go and you sh- shave your head for the vow and, and then go into the temple and, and declare yourself to the priest. If you would participate in some of these Jewish activities around here, I think that would, that would send the message to our Jewish Christians that you're still a friend. So you guys leave that conversation. <clears throat> that was weird, right? You don't know what's going on. You, it's, it's this weird city. You're, you're a foreigner. You're, you're a stranger here. You don't understand the customs. And, and Paul does. He goes and he takes these guys and he goes into the barber and he comes out bald. And then he goes into the temple and a little while later he comes back out. And then for the rest of your trip, you're just hanging out in Jerusalem. You're getting to know some of the other Christians Hear some of their stories. And a few days later, you're in the square. And you've gotten distracted again. And this time you're looking at some merchant's cart. And, and you're, you're just kind of enjoying being in the city. And at the other end of the square, you hear this commotion. And you look around for Paul. You don't see him. But this commotion's getting louder. In fact, it's starting to have kind of some, some anger involved in it. You, you see fists flying. You see people spitting. People are yelling. And so you go over to investigate what's going on. And in the middle of it, you catch your friend Paul is the center of it, the focus. Paul's getting arrested right here. Your only connection to this city He's getting arrested just outside of the temple. And, and so as you're trying to make your way through the crowd to figure out what's going on, is there, what can we do? Can we stop this? You lock eyes with Paul at the same moment that you hear the charges against him. Paul, you, a Jew, brought a Gentile into the temple and defiled it. You knew better. And so they're arresting Paul because of you. Now, you didn't go into the temple, but you've been his guest this whole week, and he's been in and out. So they think that he took you in there. And you realize as he's being dragged off that it's your fault that he's being arrested. And you make eye contact one more time before they drag him around a corner. Why is that important as we go into the book of Ephesians? Acts 21 tells us that Trophimus was an Ephesian. And I imagine that Paul had that scene in mind as he writes the next part of the book of Ephesians because he's going to be talking to the Ephesians about a temple. And the last time that there was an Ephesian had anything to do with the temple was that moment. In fact, the last time that anybody in that church had even heard from Paul was that moment. And now years later, he's in prison writing them a letter. And I imagine Trophimus is there as they read this letter. And so we're going to pick up where we left off last week in Ephesians chapter 2, 19. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, 
built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. I want you to imagine the impact that that would make on an Ephesian church who had heard the stories from Trophimus when he finally made it back home. The impact it would make whenever the background is that we don't belong there. We're foreigners, we're strangers. And he says, you're not. You're no longer foreigners or strangers. You're actually a citizen. And I think that in America, we, we take this idea of being a citizen for, for granted because America's so big, we barely ever leave the country, right? And it doesn't matter that you're a citizen of Colorado and you go to Utah. But for them, it meant that you belong. You're actually supposed to be there. And he says, you're not a foreigner or a stranger anymore. You're a citizen. You're a member of God's household. Let's keep going. Verse 21. In him, he's talking about Jesus, in him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. So now we have Paul who was arrested at the temple because of an Ephesian writing to the Ephesians about a temple. And he says, you're the temple. Now, to understand that, though, you have to have this background of what the temple really meant, what it was really about. Because all throughout Israel's history, all throughout the Old Testament, the temple was the epicenter of God's activity on earth. That was where you were most likely to see God working was at the temple. In fact, it's even the place where God lived on earth. And I know you're like, I don't think God needs a bedroom, <laughs> right? But it says in Exodus 25 that if you would build me this tabernacle, which was the mobile temple, then, then I would dwell among you. And they actually experienced that. See, in the wilderness, when they, they first built the temple, the presence of God actually dwelled over the tabernacle. I said temple, over the tabernacle. All day long it was a pillar of cloud and at night it was a pillar of fire for 40 years while they wandered the wilderness. Can you imagine being that convinced that God is with you? That at night you can't sleep without the blinds closed because God's out there being bright? But see, the thing is, this, this idea that it's the epicenter of God's activity on earth, that actually started way before the tabernacle and the temple. It actually started with Eden. See, Eden was supposed to be heaven, God's space, and earth, man's space, overlapping. And you had this place where heaven and earth overlap, and God and man walked together. They were, they were able to be together, and we broke it. And God tried to fix it from that point on because he wants to be with his people. And so you see these little touch points of God's space and man's space interacting. We see it at uh, Mount Sinai. Whenever Moses gets up uh, and he finds this bush that's on fire, but it doesn't ever actually con be consumed, and so he walks up to this burning bush to figure it out, and God speaks from the bush, Moses, stop. Take off your shoes, this place is holy. I'm here. This place is special. I'm, this is heaven and earth in one place at one time. I'm here. You need to treat this differently. 
Well, of course, then Moses brings the Israelites back to Mount Sinai when he gets them out of Egypt, and he goes up on the mountain, and this time it's really obvious. There's fire, there's smoke, there's an earthquake, there's months of this, like people having to stay off the mountain because it's terrifying while Moses is getting the law. And in that law, God describes the tabernacle. He says, I want to dwell with you guys. I want to. So he describes this tabernacle. But see, the problem is the tabernacle, which is like God's motor home, you know, like they're going to be camping for a while. And he's like, I guess I'll camp with you. So they make him a, a mobile house, right? And so they des- he describes it. But it, see, the problem is, since it's been broken, he's holy and they're sinful. And there's a problem See, I think we don't take sin uh, as seriously now after Jesus. We treat it like it's something that we do wrong. The story of Scripture says that sin is a condition that makes it dangerous for you to be in the presence of a holy God. You're so different than him. It's like the the sun, right? The, The sun's rays are good for us, right? Until Monday when it's 108 it's good. The warmth is good for our planet. It keeps the plants alive. It keeps us alive. It, it, it gives us vitamin D. It's good for us. But if you were to travel closer and closer to the exact same sun, it would become more and more dangerous. God's holiness, his goodness is good. But it gets more and more dangerous the closer you get because of our sin. And so he describes this tabernacle, but there are layers There's a room that we call the Holy of Holies, the most holy place where one priest can go one time a year and it's dangerous for him to go in there, the Day of Atonement. And then outside of that, there's another room where a special part of the Levitical family is allowed to go and minister and it's also kind of dangerous. And then outside of that is the courtyard where the actual sacrificial part of the temple system is happening, still just the Levite priests. And outside of that is the camp. And the presence of God could dwell with people with these layers protecting them from him. Because the purpose was to prepare sinful people to be in the presence of a holy God. Now, you fast forward and the van life has a shelf life. And eventually the mobile home thing has to end. So he lets Solomon build him a real temple, a permanent place. But it gets destroyed. They rebuild it. It gets destroyed. And by the time Trophimus and Paul are at the temple, they're at a place we would call Herod's temple, the third temple. And by that point, it had grown. It was now 34 acres of property. It was a quarter mile in each direction with a wall all the way around it. And the problem is now they hadn't just got the layers that protect you from God's holiness. They had added some layers Not only did they have all of the original layers, now they've got a court for women. You can only go this far without the right genetic code, right? And then they've got another court for the Gentiles. Like, you're allowed to be here, but you're not allowed to be here, right? And then they've got a sign-up that says, if you're a Gentile and you pass this point, you're risking your life. It was very clear when you didn't belong. And I imagine whenever Trophimus reads this part of Ephesians and he sees the word temple, he goes, I know that place. I know what it's like to not belong, right? We know what it's like to not be invited into the meeting. And so the problem is the temple 
had all of the good parts of it. It had the, the, the holiness of God being exposed to us in a way that's good for us, right? It, had, it was the epicenter of God's activity on earth. But it also had all these negative consequences of separation that had become bigotry and racism by the time the Ephesians experienced it. And Paul says here that the church has become the temple. That the church is replacing the temple. And did you notice verse 21 there? It says, in him, in Christ. If you're in Christ, you're one of the building blocks of a new temple. Being fitted and joined together. And it says, and you too are being built together. Now, when I looked up that word you, I was expecting it to be plural because he's talking to a church. Singular. You, individual believer, you, person who has put your faith in Jesus, personally are being built together with other individual believers to form a place that says that God will dwell. He's talking to a local church. He's not talking to the big C church. He's saying to the Ephesian church, you are going to become the epicenter of God's activity in your town. You are going to replace the temple, not where you meet, not the building, you guys, when you're together. You will become the epicenter of God's activity. No longer is it on a hill in Jerusalem. Now it's wherever you get together with the local church. That's the place that God dwells. That's where he says, I want to be with you when you're together. But there's a problem I think that Paul intended to say that the good parts of the temple are what you guys are replacing, but we accidentally bring with us the things that make us feel like we belong at church. And the things that make us feel like that allow us so that most people end up treating church like it's a Christian club. Right? You might say, I play tennis, and you're in a tennis club. I love to read. I'm in a book club. I'm a Christian. I go to church. Very similar mindset because we like to be around people who share our values. It's, it's nice to belong. And the problem is when we treat it like a Christian club, it's all about what I get out of it. And we treat church like it's about us. We have, a, we have a saying around here. We use it for a lot of different things. Church is for you, but it's not about you. It's about Jesus Christ. It's for you, but we treat it like it's about us. And I know this because I have this conversation with a lot of people. I can still be a Christian and not go to church. Yes, you can. Yes, you can. But what that does is that betrays what you think about church because you're saying, I could take it or leave it. It's, it's not for me. I'm not getting anything out of it. Okay, so yes, you can, but that mindset tells me what you think about church, that it's a club. And I think there are lots of other indicators in our lives that we treat it like a club. And here's the thing, I think we are part of something so much bigger the local church has become the temple where a holy God lives among people. So we should be expecting and participating in God's activity. We should be preparing people around us to be in the presence of a holy God. And part of the problem is I think that we have 
nerfed church. You guys know what nerf is? Nerf darts? It's how you play with guns without getting hurt. I think we have nerfed church to the point that we've, we've made such an effort to make church appealing to people that we have stripped away the fact that it is a holy God that we are coming into the presence of. And that takes away the weight of what Jesus did to allow sinners like me to be in the presence of a holy God. So now we don't have the holiness of God or the weight of the cross. And then we get together and we, we pretend like we're all about Jesus when really we're a lot about us. The church also is like an upgrade to the temple because the church can bring the presence of God to people whereas the temple was a place where people had to go to be in the presence of God. There used to be a location you had to travel to. And see, if we're active participants in the mission of the church instead of members of a Christian club, then we would be going with the gospel outward. That's what the church is for. We get to take the temple with us, and yet we still go to it. I think we are missing the point. Now, Paul keeps going. In Ephesians 3 now, you'll turn the page. He's going to be in verse 1. And I don't know if you have ever started a sentence and then realized you need to give some background information before you finish. That's Paul, okay? For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, pause, surely you have heard of the, about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is the mystery made known to me by revelation as I have already written briefly. He starts talking about this mystery, which he talked about in chapter 2. We, we briefly touched on it last week. Verse 4. In reading this, then, you'll be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise of Jesus Christ. So now he has, as he started talking about the church, he described it as a temple, and now he's saying it's also a mystery. The church is the mystery here. And, and it's not a mystery like a puzzle that needs to be unlocked. It's a mystery like, uh, like a secret. And that secret was kept for a while. And then Paul has the opportunity to reveal the secret, right? And so the secret, though, is not that God is going to take care of the Gentiles. Because I think really, if you really take a serious look at the Old Testament, God loved Gentiles from the beginning. And I don't even think the Jews in, in that day would have said anything different. I think they know God's going to do something for them. He's going to take care of them. The mystery was that there was going to be this complete integration of Jews and Gentiles into one new family where everybody gets treated the same. That's what was a mystery. And you can imagine how hard that was because imagine the separation in those days. Imagine the, the racism and the bigotry between Jews and Gentiles. See, it's not that hard to imagine, is it? Because, I mean, it's, it's good that we don't have ways of separating ourselves now. It's actually not that hard to imagine, is it? We have all kinds of ways. In fact, if I say us and them, 
It only takes a brief moment for you to figure out who them is, doesn't it? For everybody, it might be a little bit different. You've, you've got ways like, like the rich and the poor, and the poor usually know the difference, right? The boss and the worker, male and female. In our valley, white and Hispanic, Democrat, Republican. We have found all kinds of ways to draw lines between us and them. And see, the Jews, they felt special. They were us. They had a lot of thems out there. They felt real special about themselves. And the reason they felt special was because of the promises that God had made them. In fact, the promises actually go way back, all the way back to Abraham, the beginning of the Jewish nation. Abraham was the first Jew, the first Israelite, and God made a promise to him. He said, Abraham, look up at the stars. Can you count them? You won't be able to count your descendants either, just like that. And he said, this land that I have you walking around on, one day your family is going to inherit and own this land. And you're going to be a blessing to all the nations of the world. A promise that probably didn't make sense in, in, to one family in a, in a dusty corner of the earth. But a promise. And then as time goes on, that gets narrowed down. Out of that nation, David becomes the king. And David does such a good job in God's eyes that God says, I want to promise you that you will always have somebody from your line sitting on the throne. A new promise for Israel, narrowed down through David. And then we get to Jeremiah 31, and there's a new promise of a new covenant. A new way of doing a relationship with God, because the old covenant, the law, was easy to break, and they were really good at screwing it up. And God said, I'm going to do it a new way, where it doesn't matter how good or bad you are at it, it's going to be about what I do for you. A promise of a new covenant. And all of these things then are then fulfilled in Jesus. Abraham, David, and the new covenant, all fulfilled in Jesus. And the Jews felt like they had the VIP access. Right? Like, I don't know if you've ever had backstage passes somewhere, but you pay extra for that, right? Right? To get the VIP access, to go where you're not supposed to go, to see the people who nobody else gets to see. And the Jews are saying, yeah, of course you're going to take care of the Gentiles, but we have the VIP tickets, right? And God goes, yeah. And so do the Ephesians. And so do the Americans. Everybody gets a VIP pass. It doesn't matter what background you have, it matters if you're in Jesus. The promise is fulfilled in him. And see, this idea that there is this diversity in an environment where they all found ways to separate themselves, that's what I think church is supposed to look like. Everything that was promised to you was promised to the next guy. We're not better. We're not special. We're not on the inside of a club thumbing our nose at people that are on the outside. This idea that it's supposed to be inclusive. In fact, let's keep going. Verse 7. He says, I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ. And I make plain to everyone the administration 
of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God, who created all things. I love this little, like, humble brag here. He's like, I really don't deserve to be involved. I'm like the least of God's people, but he picked me to tell you. He's so excited. He's like, I don't know how, but I get the privilege of letting you guys know. And, and here's the thing. He says, I need to make it plain to everyone. There's no special categories. A few years ago, my family and I went to Disney World. In fact, when I say a few years ago, uh, it was in that weird part of the pandemic when travel was weird and going places was, was different and everybody had different rules. And so you couldn't just go to Disney World and buy a ticket. You had to make a reservation ahead of time. They only had so much space. They needed to vet you. They needed to decide that you could come. And then if you had permission, then you could buy a ticket. Then you could go. And unlike that, Paul says, there's no reservation system here. Nobody has the inside track. And so let me ask you guys a question. How is it possible that the modern local church is less diverse than the early church? in an environment like that where they all hated each other and went to war and there was so much built-in intrinsic racism and division, how is it possible that the modern local church is less diverse than that? Why is it that almost everybody that you go to church with looks like you, dresses like you, lives in the same tax bracket as you, votes like you? It seems like the call here is that we're supposed to look like our community. We should represent the community that we're in. And so if everybody in our church looks just like me, then I wonder if we've traded the power of that mystery, the diversiveness of the, the church for a country club in disguise. We should be surrounded by people with different backgrounds with different skin colors, with different lifestyles, because the gospel reaches across all of those boundaries and says, do you want to be a part of this thing that I'm a part of? We should be able to worship next to people that vote different than us. Imagine the impact we could be making in our valley or in our nation if we really took this idea to heart, that it doesn't matter how similar we are, it matters that you get the gospel. Let's keep going. Verse 10. See, up until this point, Paul has described the church like a temple, and then he's described it like this mystery-inclusive thing. He's talking about God. He says his intent, God's intent, was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God would be made known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And so now we've got the temple, and we've got this mystery, and now he starts talking about heavenly realms. This, I, this word, I, I highlighted it, heavenly realms, that comes up five times in the book of Ephesians. It's a theme that courses through the book. In chapter 1, Paul tells us that we already have all of the blessings we're going to get in the heavenly realms, if you're in Jesus. In chapter 2, it says that Christ has been seated with God in the heavenly realms. Chapter 3 says you're seated there with him. 
Then this one, and then we get to chapter six where it describes how we're not actually fighting against people when we're struggling. We're fighting against principalities and rulers and authorities of darkness in the heavenly realms. See, there is this layer of reality that you and I rarely experience. It doesn't make it any less real. It's like another realm. That's how this is worded. Maybe another dimension. A place where the spiritual beings like angels and demons, sons of God, the armies of heaven, that kind of language, that's where they operate, the heavenly realms. But there is an interaction between the heavenly realm and the physical. Like in chapter 6, we're going to get there where it says that we, we struggle, we fight against people, and the reality is that it's Satan's forces that are animating those people that we're actually fighting against. They're the, the enemy is Satan. There's an interaction between the two. And, and last week, if you weren't here, Pastor Tim introduced an, a, a term that I really like called cosmic geography. Let me give you an ex, or a quick explanation in case you weren't here. There was this idea in the ancient world, maybe even an understanding in the ancient world, that gods, little g gods, went with a place. That Sumeria had their gods and Uzbekistan had their gods, and Israel had their god. And that's actually why Naaman in the Old Testament feels like he needs to take some of, of Israel's dirt home because he wants to be connected to Israel's god. That's, that's part of the story. And I don't think it's that far-fetched, actually. Um, the thing is, there are no other gods, <laughs> but there are demons masquerading as gods, that I think could easily be attached to a location. We see that actually in the book of Daniel. When Daniel prays and God sends him an answer, Gabriel, the angel, comes to give Daniel an answer, but it takes him like a month to get there. Because Why? Because, because he runs into this prince of Persia and has to fight him until eventually Michael, the archangel, comes and takes over the fight so that Gabriel can go around and deliver the message. This idea that there are there are demonic little g gods attached to locations, cosmic geography. I don't think that's that far-fetched. And then he says in here, his intent was that now through the church, see the church knows something. The church has some information. See, Jesus at the cross already defeated Satan. It's already done. The work has already been accomplished. Satan is defeated. The victory has been won. But the problem is we live in this tension. We would, we would call it the now and the not yet of the kingdom of God. The now part of it is that Jesus has already won. The not yet part of it is that not everybody is experiencing that and will when he finally gets here the second time. And we live between those. We live in this tension and notice what he says here. He doesn't just say in the heavenly realms. He says that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. Well, I can tell you that on the good side of the heavenly realm, there's pretty much one. There's not rulers and authorities, there's God. So who could this be talking about except the demonic forces? I think it's God's plan to take back the nations of the world that the church would show up in some demon's territory and announce that they no longer have authority, that they no longer have ownership. 
The work has already been done to defeat them. And somebody, the church, has to show up with the flag and plant the flag for the kingdom of God. You guys know much about the, the new holiday that we have called Juneteenth? I just learned about it in the last couple of years. In fact, I think 2021 is when it officially became a holiday. And I'm a white guy in the desert of Colorado, so I had no idea. I've learned about it, though, because I really like my extra day off. Juneteenth has to do with slavery, but it wasn't even what I thought it was. You see, in September of 1862, Abraham Lincoln gave the Emancipation Proclamation. He declared that all of the slaves in the southern states were free. By December of 62, it had been ratified. It was now the law. And by January 1st of 63, it was the enforceable law of the land. But for two and a half years, landowners in Texas didn't tell their slaves. So for two and a half years, it was illegal for them to be in slavery, and yet they were not experiencing the freedom that had already been declared. And a colonel had to show up with his army in Texas and say, these slaves are free, you have to stop holding them. And I wonder if that's what God is expecting of the church that we would be walking into enemy territory. And of course, the enemy isn't telling everybody, you're free, you should check out Jesus. We're the ones with that information. And so they're treating it like they have ownership. And we are supposed to come into town and change the dynamic. That it's through the church that this wisdom, this plan of God would be proclaimed to the heavenly realm. We're going to finish with two more verses here. In him, and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. And I can imagine Trophimus reading that and being like, wait, you can, I can walk in? All of this means that I can just go in? I'm not on the outside? What a cool conclusion, right? And then he says, I ask therefore, I ask you therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. So he ends this section with an encouragement, and I imagine that Paul is thinking of Trophimus in this moment. And he's thinking of locking eyes with him during his arrest, and he's like, I saw the pain on your face. I saw that you had all this fear and shame, and you thought it was your fault. And it was worth it. Because me being in chains, me suffering, means that we can expose this new truth of what God is doing. It's for your glory that I'm suffering. Don't be upset. It's good for you. And it's worth it. And so as we wrap all of this up, I want to leave you with this idea. See, Paul thinks, or Paul is telling us that church is supposed to be the new temple, that it's this mystery-inclusive thing, and that it's a force for the gospel in our communities. The church was never supposed to be a club. But when we treat it like it's a club, we strip it of the power and the purpose that God intended, and we turn it into an anemic, pathetic shell of what it could be. 
And when we treat it like it's a club, church becomes an optional activity that only makes sense if you're going to get more out of it than you're leaving at home. So you come when you want to, but when there's better things to do. Or when we treat it like it's a club, people are still excluded from the club. It's about me getting something from my church. I don't even think about the people out there. If it's a club, then the lost are never rescued from Satan's oppression. And my fear is that instead of being a force for the glory of God on earth, we'll settle for an impotent Christian club. And we're rarely going to see the activity of God, and we're rarely going to experience the peace of God or see his transformation in lives. We're never going to see our families or our neighborhoods or our city taken from the tyrannical grip of Satan. I think the only way to change that is to change the way that we see the church. And then to get really practical as we close here, how you see the church will determine how you see your role in it. See, if it's a club, then you're a member. You're a consumer. Maybe you're a facilitator of a niche group or some events. Maybe you help. Maybe you're a contributor. And all of those things are good. And all of those things could happen at the Elks Lodge. If it's a club. But if it's a temple, then you're a priest bringing the presence of a holy God into an unholy space. If it's a temple, then you're there to make an offering, a sacrifice of thanksgiving to God. If it's a temple, then you should be changed by the will of an awesome God who's willing to interact with you in the first place. And instead of a club, if it's a force for the gospel, then you're part of the search and rescue team. If it's a force for the gospel, then you're a herald announcing the defeat to the enemy and to the souls that the enemy has control of. If it's a force for the gospel, then you're planting a flag for the kingdom in your city and your home. But if it's a club, you just come and get. And see, here's the thing. We treat it like it's something that we get. You don't get good worship at church. You give good worship at church, right? It's not about what we get, it's about what we do. But when it's a club, you would never think of it that way. And so as we leave here today, I want you, like I think Paul wanted the Ephesians to know that you are part of something so big and so special, and it is to your glory to participate in it and not nerf it. Let me pray for you real quick. Heavenly Father, we thank you um, that you trust us to be the temple, to be the place that you connect with the world. We thank you that you trust us enough to, um, to bring your glory and your goodness and your activity into our communities. And we're sorry that we have turned it into a club that we get something from. Holy Spirit, we invite you to change our minds. And as we go out of here, think, help us think about how we participate in what you're doing instead of what we're getting. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.